My name is Jeremy Prest, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to have a conversation with one of Brownstone's Institute's most senior scholars, Ramesh Takir. He is a former United Nations Assistant Secretary General and an Emeritus Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy, Australian National University. He is joining us today from New South Wales to discuss the recent publication of a five-part series entitled State, Power and COVID Crimes. You know, everyone deserves to hear about his findings, not so we can be shamed or guilted about the last three years, but in hopes that as a society, we can learn and design a future where our children will not succumb to propaganda and the pseudoscience narratives. Stay tuned. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Dr. Ramesh, it's so good to have you on today's program. I want to say a huge thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. You, you have obviously a passion to get, get your message out. And so I want to start there. What is it that you are, what is it your main message or what are you trying to achieve in, in communicating to the people that you're trying to reach? Well, I suppose the short form of that is uh, this too will pass. Uh, as human beings, we have had crises. We will continue to have crises. I think it is very important for all the authorities uh, starting from the local level, in the provincial level, if you like, uh, in Canada and Australia, through the national and through the global level. Yes, we have the knowledge, we have the available means, uh, no matter how bad it seems, we'll get on top of it, uh, just stay calm and carry on. We've been through these before and COVID was in not, in fact, uh, once in a century crisis as a public health crisis. It was much closer to once in a decade crisis, certainly closer to the Hong Kong flu and the Asian wow. flu than to the Spanish flu. Uh, and I think exaggerating it uh, and frightening the people on balance, I think has been counterproductive. And in terms of existing state of knowledge that when we started, uh, I was more of a generalist uh, informed person, but the more I've looked at it, the more I've convinced that it was wrong to start panicking and that has led to too many mistakes. Yeah, because you wrote a five-part series highlighting the failures of government during this. And, and, and I, I would assume that's what you're alluding to, is the fact that there, there was an overreaction on this. Would you say that that's accurate? Yes. Uh, look, very early on, we knew that this was an extremely uh, age-stratified disease. Whether you, you know, look at the three ships, for example, the Diamond Princess, yep. uh, which had mainly elderly passengers, and the two warships, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and the French warship Charles de Gaulle, uh, which had young, fit people. Yeah. Uh, even in the elderly case, uh, yes, it was bad, but it wasn't, uh, as I said, Spanish flu, which was, uh, which did affect people of all uh, ages as well. So you're saying that those ships, <clears throat> I'm, I'm interpreting this, they were isolated situations where you could kind of get a sample size of how COVID reacted with those crowds? There are ideal conditions in which to study because they're isolated. People are living in close, confined quarters, yep. particularly with the Diamond Princess when it first happens. We didn't know anything about it. So yep. they were interacting uh, with each other. Oh, wow. And despite that, uh, you know, it, it was a serious outbreak. Uh, yep. People did die. But what we've learned since then uh, is that pretty much in all Western societies, uh, the average age with COVID, averages of death with COVID, and I'm using the word bit rather than from, average age of death with COVID has been at or above the average life expectancy. So yes, wow. it is a bad thing. We don't want our parents and grandparents to die, 
but but death is part of life. I mean, yeah. if, if you don't want to die, you should not be born in the first place. Why did you say with COVID? Well, suppose I have a bad fall. Mm-hmm. At my age, it's <laughs> not unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taken to hospital. Then they test me to see if I have any COVID uh, infection. Uh, and it turns out I do. Under present circumstances, that is required to be recorded as a COVID death. So I'm mm-hmm. dying with COVID. But in fact, the death is caused by my fall. Yeah. That's the distinction. And the worst example of that that I can remember from 2020 was some uh, some criminal uh, in New York who was shot by a couple of policemen. Uh, and because he tested COVID, it was recorded as a COVID death. Uh, we've wow. had other examples of that as well. So it's, in fact, I think the Washington Post recently ran a story, uh, or was it the New York Times? One of the two main papers in the US yeah. ran a story along these lines saying, not all deaths recorded as COVID were from COVID. So that's been a long-standing distinction. So the death tolls have not been accurate. Different countries have used different methodologies. Different countries have used different levels of testing. The PCR test, for example, you can ramp up the what's called the cycle threshold, the yeah. CT count. Once you get into the 40s, uh, pretty much anything will show up as an infection. So you're saying with the PCR test, it's almost like you're... Um, <clears throat> You're almost creating a larger sample size so that you're saying if you go into that tight of a test, it'll show up and your positives will be amplified greatly. Is that correct? There's two things. Ah. One, there's some controversy within the scientific community as to how reliable and effective and worthwhile PCR testing is to begin with. Yes, which was Uh, the gold standard through the whole thing, correct? It was, yes. Uh, The second thing is even if you do agree to use it, uh, how do you set the threshold? You know, if you go through airport security, for example, yep. you know that they can raise or lower the sensitivity of the testing and, and, and that can mark up the system of because course. they can start picking up anything in the airport thing and it goes beep, 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 and you have to yep. be checked or they can have it at a lower threshold. Similarly, with the PCR testing, you can actually change the threshold and this thing called CT should not be above 27 or 28 to have it as an accurate but some countries were using it in the 40s, at which point a common cold would be picked up, uh, wow. a sniffle would be picked up. Thing. So they, they have varied. Similarly, what is counted as a COVID death has varied across the world. And that's so we, why it's much better to use with COVID just to cover everything. So among the medical community, the doctors <clears throat> worldwide, like how, how known is this information or is it, is, is it not accessible to all doctors? Like, because if we were to have every doctor join join you and I at this conversation, would they have much of a rebuttal in your opinion? Like, could they, if you shared this with them, what else would there be for them to say? Uh, I don't think this part is controversial. Yes. Uh, I think it is accepted that, uh, you know, because maybe because of the scale of the crisis, they thought we don't have the time to start establishing uh, exact cause and we don't want to perform uh, autopsies on all people are dead. Yes. Uh, what we don't know is how bad this uh, issue was. Yes. Is, is this a majority? I mean, when, for example, we say that, let's say a million people uh, died with COVID, yep. does that mean that 20% of them died because of COVID? Yes, or does it mean point. that 80 to 90% died? That's yeah. where the controversy might come in. But the distinction, I doubt people will seriously disagree with that. I'm a dad of three. And one of the things that's through this last few years, one of the biggest things was my children and their thought process in this and how we handle it. And do we want to be 
leading with fear or do we want to be leading with wisdom? How, how, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the, how children and kids, and you mentioned schools, what, how has this affected them? Well, there's, there's several things in relation to children. Let's start with a couple of studies that I've read since that five-part series uh, was published uh, by Brownstone. It now turns out that for adults, for parents and grandparents in particular, mm-hmm. having kids around yeah. and interacting with them actually helps to build up cross-reactive immunity. Wow. So there's studies, two studies, one in August and one in November, both published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the US. So this is a major scientific body. Yeah. And what they point out, one is of people, of civilians and the other of veterans, I think. But what it shows is that people who've had kids running around and who've been exposed to these pathogens and, and build up a protective wall of immunity, yeah. you have a 27% lower chance of being hospitalized with COVID and a 49% lower chance of ending up in ICU. That's if wild. you've continued interacting with kids who are circulating these things. And that's completely so not, opposite of what they were advising. Exactly. Wow. And yet it was part of the original consensus. That's crazy. That kids, I mean, I remember Professor Sunit Gupta from Oxford saying that way back in 2020, that we have a higher immunity around the world because of people yeah. travel all the time. And, and I remember Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford saying that kids are useful in building up protective barriers of immunity for uh, elderly people. And so kids going to school, you may remember some odd results when if schools were kept open, the teachers were at lower risk of infection than in the community, people in the community. So that's part of the same phenomenon that you actually build up immunity. So not only did we condemn our granny to a lonely death in isolation, we actually increased the chances of her dying if we kept kids away from her. So these are the sorts of things that we need to look at. Now, let me give you another example of some crazy rules. I I talked about rules that don't make sense. As it happens uh, in a couple of weeks, well, less than that, I'll be going to India. Now, India has just reintroduced mandatory pre-departure PCR, back to PCR, PCR testing. If you are coming from certain countries, including China and Japan, which have very high infection rates at the moment. But that I can understand. But even if you're transiting, so my route from Australia to India takes me via Singapore. If I'm transiting through Singapore, I'm required to have a negative PCR test within 72 hours of leaving Australia. Just think about that. Yeah. If I'm going from Australia directly, they're not going to test me. Because I'm transiting to Singapore, they say there's a risk of getting infection in Singapore. Yeah. So how will the test before I get to Singapore establish I have an infection? It won't make. It won't do any good. Yeah. Exactly. So th- it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. But some bureaucrat thought that's a good idea. Let's test them uh, and wrote it down. Uh, things like that 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 yeah, just silly. became so common and, and made absolutely no sense. Yeah. And the net result of that, and I think the school closures. Uh, let alone the damage that results from school closures, which are very, very consequential and will last them for a lifetime. Uh, I think the net result has been, as people realize this, the faith and confidence and trust in public health institutions. Was there anything they did right? 
Well, they're, they're, I'm sure there's lots that things that they did that that were right, and yeah. with most of them, I think you have to uh, accept the good intentions. Yes. But yes. but the worst thing they did was try to shut down scientific debate. Yes. Uh, because if if it's a novel coronavirus, all the more reason to listen to a range of opinions, have them around the table. Yeah. You know, one of the worst things that governments did is hand over policy decision-making to the health bureaucrats. Yeah. I think yeah. you need a range of different opinions. We we don't have, even in Alberta or Canada or in Australia, we don't have a COVID minister. We have a health yeah. minister. Yeah. And the health minister should balance the resources being directed at COVID yeah. and the impact of COVID on public health against other diseases. Yeah. And for example, if you change focus slightly, uh, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, I think only 1% of the population is aged over 75. And whose numbers are below the age where it's a real threat. Yeah. And so for them, it's a different uh, set of considerations that should apply. Yeah. Similarly, from the start, we know that children are at very, very low risk. Yes their risk was supposed to be 1,000 that of elderly people. Yeah. And the harms of these interventions are demonstrable, serious, and could last a long time. Which is why it was almost, it was odd how quickly they were trying to push a vaccine for that crowd, because they were at the lowest level of risk of anyone else. Absolutely, and, and, yeah. But yet they were, <clears throat> um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, yet they seem to be skipping a lot of the precautionary measures in creating the vaccine for for that crowd. It's usually a much longer process, am I right? It is, it is. Yeah. We have this mRNA technology, okay, yeah. which is a new technology and you can get into controversies of whether it's gene therapy or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it is gene-based at the very least. I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I, I don't have the technical expertise to answer that yes. question. I know again that the debate that, but it is gene-based. Yeah. In principle, around the world, we live longer, we live healthier thanks to dramatic revolutionary advances in the technology of medicine as well as in the products. Yes. How we administer medicine, what tools we use to administer. Yes. And vaccinations have been an absolutely critical feature of that. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. So in principle, there is nothing objectionable to trying to harness new technology as they develop. Yes. If you have a grave health crisis, you can understand the pressures to roll it out sooner rather than later yes even that is understandable but that increases yeah. the requirement on health authorities to monitor is monitor all this much more rigorously yeah. to make sure that there are no side effects that's where they have fallen down in their rush to jab as many arms as often as possible yeah i think they have started they have been far more lax in monitoring potential side effects and ignoring the fact that by definition, we hadn't been able to test them long term. Yeah. And we have too many instances in the past where things have gone wrong. So in the case of vaccines, there are three concepts that are fundamental. Yeah. One is absolute risk reduction. Yeah. Second is relative risk reduction. And the third is numbers needed to vaccinate. If you look at the first two, for the original trials, the absolute risk reduction from the Pfizer vaccine, for example, was less yeah. than one percent. Yeah, it was zero point eight four percent. And what's a normal the, vaccine's number? 
Well, yeah, but you need to look at different but things. Ballpark. Like if you had, would it be significantly higher than that? When it's a really deadly disease and yes. you have an effective vaccine, it, it, it's, it's quite significant. Yes. But the ones they used was a relative risk adjustment, which is where that 95% came from. Yes. So if you go down from 0.88 to 0.04, which is what it was, that works out at a 95% reduction. Oh, okay. But, you know, if you're going to be infected, then the 95% thing is quite a lot. Yes. And yes. particularly for the elderly people. Yeah. But the critical thing was the third one, which is the numbers needed to vaccinate. And that depends on the age cohort. Yes. So for people up to the age of 50, for example, your risk of a serious illness from COVID is very low. Yeah. The numbers needed to vaccinate in order to prevent one hospitalization or death is very high. And if it is, let's say, 10, well, let's say 50,000 need to be vaccinated, yep. then from the 50,000 vaccinated, what is the risk of serious adverse events? Yeah. And there you begin to find that the risk of adverse events is higher than the benefits. So for younger oh. people, the risks of some side effects begins to exceed the benefits yeah. again. Yeah. And if they don't stop transmission, yeah. we have in October the... What was her name? Uh, Janine Small, I think, the Pfizer executive, who admitted in the European Parliament that yeah. they have a, they never tested for transmissibility. Yeah. So if they don't stop transmission, you cannot argue that getting someone injected is going to help a third person. Yes, for sure. Because that was even the governments used that at the early stages to say, if you're vaccinated, you're not transmissible. Exactly. And, if, and if you're and I even saw on a, a YouTube ad that said, if you're unvaccinated, you are a vac, um, you are a um, COVID producing variant machine was the it was somewhere along those lines. You, you and, are a biohazard. You're a biohazard. Yes. You're and a I saw I saw that and I went, whoa. Guy. And so it, it, in in my eyes, it was a they are they are using this information very boldly and strongly and not not supplying any um, data to back this. I tried to search it, follow it, couldn't. And it was and you had the claim. statement from Dr. Anthony Fauci that if you're vaccinated, you're a dead end to the virus. Yes. Meaning yeah. you cannot transmit it. Yeah. So there was a lot of claims like that, which they should not yeah. have been making in the first place because the data didn't back it up. Yeah. But the fact, you come back to that. If, you, if it doesn't stop transmission, yeah. there is absolutely no justification for mandating it. Yes. Yes. You, you say to people, <laughs> you're in a high risk group. You know, I'm in my 70s. For me, it made a lot of sense, given the various things. So, okay, I, I will take shot one, shot two, and, and it helps to reduce my, uh, at, at that point, at the time that I make the decision. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll do it now. Yeah. Uh, but for younger people, if, it, if the risk to them individually of serious COVID infection yeah. is outweighed by the risk of a serious adverse event, yeah. then let them decide. Yeah. I mean, who, who, why yeah. would we demand Djokovic get vaccinated, given that he's just about the fittest person on the whole planet yeah. and, and healthy? Uh, yeah. when, the, when we see so many athletes suffering adverse events, if not caused by the vaccine, at least following the vaccine. Yeah. So those sorts of risks they should have made, left it to individuals depending on the circumstances. Yeah. And there was no justification for mandating it as a, as a tool of protecting others. Yeah. So you're not going to protect granny by getting vaccinated yourself. In yeah. fact, you're doing a better job of protecting, protecting granny if you get infected and survive because that helps to build up the so-called herd immunity. So all those things, I think we, we 
trying to simplify it in order to get the message across. Yeah. But the basic message was itself erroneous. Do you think that they've um, damaged their ability to communicate something maybe that comes around that's maybe got a higher morbid morbidity rate or, or like are people even going to respond how they maybe uh, need to in the future? They will respond, but to a lesser degree than they would have otherwise. And yeah. that's where the, I think damage uh, is, is bad. But also part of the lockdown consequences yeah. was shutting down critical immunization programs in the yeah. developing world. Yeah. And and that's we are talking of millions now yeah. whose immunization programs were halted because of the uh, lockdowns, stringent lockdowns. Yeah. Uh, and that that cannot be recovered. And I think you could you could probably um, expand that into families, relationships, domestic violence, to depression, to you could probably look at every one of these fronts. And I, I would imagine the, the correlation is irrefutable, uh, that, that, that they would have gone up in these situations with lockdowns. And then you look at the uh, food production that yeah. was damaged, food yeah. distribution that was damaged, the supply chains that were damaged, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the flinging millions and millions back into poverty when they had been aspiring to hit the middle classes. Yeah. So there's consequences in our societies in the rich, high-income countries like Canada and Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's consequences of our actions on the developing world. It, it it terrified me the extent to which we just shut our eyes to the damage that this was causing across the world yeah. in countries whose average population was much lower and therefore they were much at much lower risk. Yeah. And then you look at the results today, I mean, we look at vaccination. When the vaccination campaign began, we had over a million dead. Yeah. But now we are almost seven, uh, seven million. When we hit 50% vaccination globally, which was a year ago now, yeah. since then, more than a million have died. So at which point is it? In Australia, we look at yeah. the, after we hit 50% vaccination, well, you look at, you know, we've had much, many more deaths yeah. with 70-80% uh, adult vaccination than we had before that. Yeah. So at some stage, you think, is it possible that the vaccinations themselves are driving infections? Yeah. yeah. And if you look at the overall figures, you say, well, more people are dying vaccinated. Now, proportionately, that may still be less yeah. than the unvaccinated. Yeah. Although in many countries, even that actually no longer holds. Yeah. So you, you just need to drill down and saying, okay, it hasn't been as successful as we've been led to believe. Yeah. Maybe it hasn't been as successful as people honestly believed it would be. But what, what worries me and, and puzzles me is their failure to look at the actual data yeah. instead of still saying, no, it is safe and effective. Well, for some people, yes, not necessarily for others. So for like for the average citizen in their in whatever country they're watching in, if they what do you recommend them to do now now that they've heard what you said and go look into it themselves and they're talking to their doctor? What what do they do with that? I think I, I think that is a second major failure. Yeah. Is the regulators preventing doctors from having honest, open discussions with the patients? Wow. And so this notion of informed consent, I think, has been damaged. Yeah. And this notion of first do no harm and the way we have censored and punished doctors who spoke out. And you had cancellation mm -hmm. of licenses uh, in Canada as well as some, yep. some high profile ones. I think that in turn has affected the ability of people to have faith 
that they're getting honest, full advice from yeah. their doctors. For sure. That's damaging. And I think that's very, that's very unhelpful. It should be. if so, so to go back to your question, I think the answer should be take your concerns, have an open discussion with your doctor, ask about these questions. Yeah. And no one knows your health record yeah. in as intimate a detail as your doctor. Yeah. So have a full discussion with the doctor as to what is best given your individual circumstances. Yeah. Generalized recommendations have not been very useful in this. Uh, and then if you're not said, you know, why is it that for doctors, for if, if, you, if the doctor says, I'll recommend this particular uh, surgical operation, you are encouraged to seek a second, perhaps even a third opinion. Absolutely. Yep. But suddenly with COVID, that is not a good idea. Yeah. You're only allowed to have one truth and that is what the Ministry of Health says and what the health minister says. Yeah. When in fact, over three years, so many of the things they said have been proven to be wrong. It's no longer yeah. uh, disputable that many of the things they said uh, were wrong. Well, and the so idea that, the, yeah, the, thing, on, the thing is, too, is that like one of the or probably one of the biggest concerns to me was in any topic, take pick anything. If someone's not willing to discuss the pros, the cons, the questions that maybe should come, that's concerning to me because if it's if it works or if it's good, it'll it'll stand any question. It'll withstand mm -hmm. it. So why exactly. not ask it? So that and it, that seems to be have to been tossed to the side. And uh, it's it odd. and there are and some great doctors I, out there. But no, that's what I'd go back to an earlier point, and that is that if you're a government, yeah, and you're the prime minister, and you say, okay, so this is a risk from COVID. If we don't do, you're saying this will be the impact, and so many people will die. Yeah, but if we if we implement the measures you are recommending, what will be the impact of that on school closures, on poverty reduction, yeah. on our foreign aid for other countries? What will be the impact on employment? What about mental health? Yeah. So it's yeah. all of these issues that should be looked at. Yeah. And then you say, okay, based on these factors, these are the things that we are going to implement. This is what we are going to watch. So it's not just ignore things, but let's look at the data as it evolves. Yeah. Uh, and, and real data, not models. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, models have been proved to be not fit for purpose. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think we need to look at actual data and change your policy as the data changes. Doctor, what, People what, do make mistakes. That's fine. That's, and that's, and that's you're, you're very right on that. There's very It's very rare to find them admit fault and also uh, backtrack on it. One last question here before we sure. wrap up is um, what about the... What about the nation? There's a few nations that did this very differently than the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. What's your take on those? Well, the most prominent uh, yeah. is Sweden. Yeah. And they've been fully vindicated. Yeah. Though, you know, we talked about the difference between from COVID and with COVID. Yes. One measure that cannot be gamed mm -hmm. and cannot be manipulated is all-cause mortality. Yeah. So what we look at is how many people died from whatever cause yeah. in Sweden this year. Yep. And how does that compare yep. to the five-year average before COVID? So 2015 to 2019. And you look at that, you know what? In the entire OECD, yep. Sweden has the lowest all-cause mortality today. Wow. Oh. <laughs> and wow. that you cannot argue with. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So, uh, so you look at that and, and that's a useful way now to look back. Okay. How does all cause in Australia uh, at the moment from the latest 
uh, figures I've seen from these are official figures yeah. from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The 2022 all-cause mortality was 16%, 16% higher than the five-year average. That's a very large number. Wow. So I, I haven't looked at Canada, but that would be the measure that now we have had the advantage of three years. Yeah. You need to look at that. Uh, and then if it's excess enough to worry, mm -hmm. then you start investigating, well, what caused it? Yeah. And I think you'll find in most Western countries that I've looked at, that the excess from non-COVID causes is significantly higher than the excess of people dying with COVID. In other words, yeah. the, it's possible now to say that yeah. we need to investigate whether the policies in response to drove, COVID drove everything else up. Yeah, caused wow. more harm than it did, even on the simple metric of deaths. So all-cause mortality is the thing that people should fo focus on today. Well, Dr. Ramesh, I can't thank you enough for being on today. There's, I feel like we could just continue going and unpack this even further. But thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ramesh, and uh, we appreciate your time. And uh, this has been extremely insightful. So thank you. You're very welcome. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. It's Return to Reason.